Welcome to another episode of At Home with Leaders, this series that is part of the Leaders Performance Podcast. Its aim is to unearth stories and insights from the top people within high performance and what they are doing now as sport edges closer back to some sort of normality in our lives. I'm Matthew Stone, Senior Product Manager here at the Leaders Performance Institute, and I'd like to say hello again to all the returning listeners and a big welcome to those who are listening for the first time. It's a pleasure to have you with us. In a moment, we'll be chatting to Danny Kerry, discussing the evolution of the coach, player ownership, and leadership development. Unsurprisingly, all these topics and more are frequently discussed virtually amongst our members. We have an action-packed schedule of virtual roundtables coming up with sessions on the future of high performance, how the pandemic will influence the modern athlete and the art of effective change management, as well as rethinking organisational diversity. If you'd like to find out more about our events, content, virtual learning and networking by becoming a member of our unrivaled network of the world's high performance community that challenges thinking and shares insights spanning all sports and all aspects of performance, then please visit leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. Now on to today's episode. As always, it's a joy to have top sports psychologist and my co-host, Michael Caulfield, alongside me once again for another episode. How are you this afternoon, Michael? Particularly well, Matt. Particularly well, thank you. Why is that? Because I've been outside, outdoors, in training grounds, facilities, with sports teams, with athletes, doing healthy things, preparing for seasons, preparing for challenges ahead, and it reminds me of the sheer joy of being involved, so that puts me in good form. Lovely. We're edging closer back, aren't we? Our guest today is someone who I and we at Leaders have known for a number of years, actually, and really enjoy talking to. It's head coach of England and GB men's hockey. It's Danny Kerry. Good afternoon, Danny. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Matt. Yeah, like Mike, I've just spent the morning on the pitch with the lads, so uh, equally feeling good at the moment. Nice to be getting back to some sort of normality, I'm sure. Yeah, um, the last couple of weeks we've all we've been allowed into full 11 on 11, which has been really good. You can see the lads, they remember why they love playing the game a little bit, and it's been fantastic to be around. Brilliant. Well, we, um, we're moving away from the kind of lockdown COVID questions a little bit, but I would like to start with one really, because we've asked all of our guests just on how they've reflected you know, the time in the lockdown period. And, and you know, did it teach you anything? Did it make you more aware of anything, appreciate anything more? How, how did you find that period? The particular context for me, I'd had an incredibly busy 2018 and then I took over the men, which led to then a very, very busy end of 2018, 2019. And actually the opportunity to just stop and sort of take stock of of my new role with the men has been a sort of welcome moment and you don't normally get it. That's been really good from my perspective, just to have a moment of taking stock. And then interestingly, you become skillful at trying to have conversations over technology. Um, so you're reading sort of different cues and talking to one another in slightly different ways and you, you become more skillful and less clunky over the time. And then coming back into having normal conversations and sort of getting back into that and attending to different cues with those people in the, in, the, in a normal environment. So that's been just a, a curiosity for me. From a coaching perspective, Danny, what have you taken out of lockdown? Have there been any nice hidden surprises in terms of how you think you might coach the gaps in training and playing? We deliberately, we, we chose to not try to overcomplicate things and give the athletes a necessary break that they wouldn't normally have. But I think the thing that the lads have done really well that I would probably now look to continue is we, we ran a series, you know, it's a bit cliche, but we call them their connected groups. So we put them in small groups. So they just stayed in touch with one another and mutually supported each other. Sometimes when you're being busy fools in a full-time program, you forget to find the right amount of time and space for that. That's something I'm discussing with Tim uh, and Katie, our two psychologists who work with our program, about can we take some of that and just make sure it happens in our normal environment. 
So that, that's they're probably my two take-homes. On a very personal basis, I work in teams as a sports psychologist. Have they been busier than normal? Have they just been themselves? Have they been helping to connect the team and you and keep it all? What's been their role, if I can ask Danny? I think one of the busiest practitioners we've had has actually been the performance lifestyle, Emma. Emma Mitchell does a fantastic job because a number of our athletes were planning to retire or had job offers uh, starting a family and they were very busy sort of working with those athletes. And then Tim, as the psychologist through that period, did a really good job of sort of checking in with those athletes from a you know well-being perspective, more than necessarily a performance, you know, out-and-out performance perspective. Then was responsible for setting up those connected groups, and we did some review as well. So we had more space review, and Tim did a really good job at getting the athletes to do a very mature review. Very much empowered them to look at our program, ask some questions that they don't often get to ask themselves at that point in the cycle. And Tim played a really good role in regard to that. And I guess you're one of the guests we've had on who've been most affected by lockdown with working towards Olympic Games, which have now been pushed back to 2021, of course. Can, can you explain how that affected you and your staff and players and, and all of you, really, in, in terms of that planning that you've put in and obviously now have that extra time to do so? You've touched on it there, but overall, how, how did that affect the group? I think in terms of the staff, because it'd been a, a busy transition as I took over late 2018, what it did give us was an opportunity to put pull the handbrake on and just take stock. When I joined the program, we were straight into a World Cup in India, which lasted a month, and then straight into the Pro League, flying around the world. And so in essence, it was sort of managing elements of the status quo whilst trying to, sh- to shift and change some elements of the program. This actual lockdown has genuinely felt like a, a bit of a gift to us, an opportunity really to properly, as I say, take stock. I'm sure many of the Olympic coaches are thinking, oh, brilliant, another year. That has genuinely been my feeling in a strange way. I have a great empathy for some of the athletes who had very good plans for after Tokyo. But my genuine sense from the group, the playing group and from the staff, it's actually been very, very good for us. It's allowed us to change some stuff we needed to change, to take stock uh, and to properly review, properly plan in a way that perhaps we hadn't been able to do just at the point of the cycle I'd came, I, I had to come in at. For me, it's been, from a performance perspective and Tokyo 2021 games, it's been a good thing. Was there any particular moment, any moments at all when you thought you, you needed to step away from it at all because it's an extra year of pressure and planning and we all have family commitments? Was there any, any thoughts of, of stepping away from it as it went into an extra year? Not for me personally, no. Quite the opposite, actually. It makes me realise I genuinely love what I do and having it taken away from you you really realise I really love the interaction with the athletes. I really love the cut and thrust of competition and international matches. I have absolutely loved every minute spending more time with my family. But at the same time, I do enjoy what I do professionally. It it isn't just something I'm paid to do. I, I genuinely love it. And having it taken away from you just really makes you understand that there's something you enjoy and love. That thought never crossed my mind. So many coaches now say that they've, they've enjoyed the break, but it made them realise, like myself also, and myself, so Danny, just how lucky we are to be involved. And I'm, I'm pleased that your enthusiasm has not waned one one jot and you're you're ready for the next series of the build-up. A hundred percent. I feel batteries are in a good place. And often, you know, a year out from the games, it can feel a bit, a little bit the opposite. But yeah, and, and importantly, I think the athlete group has also realised they've had that bit of distance to realise we do what we love. And sometimes you can lose sight of that a little bit because you're just in the churn of the everyday training environment. And I think many of them have thought, you know what, I actually really appreciate what I do and have come back with a bit of added vitality as well.
think a lot of people have just said just finding that balance now you know you touched upon there just enjoying your time with your family which I think everyone's done but then also being grateful for the roles that we're in so I think yeah I don't think you're on your own though in, in, in feeling that M- moving away from kind of COVID and lockdown a little bit I remember when you mentioned a few things in the last P8 think tank we were at together in, at Twickenham last November which really does feel like a a lifetime ago now one was around player empowerment and, and as a head coach how, how do you work to empower your players but also make sure that they don't slip into you know a feeling of entitlement I think you touched upon that last time we were together in the modern performance world people talk a lot about sort of collecting data and objectivity I would put this firmly in the bracket of expertise and judgment of, of staff and head coaches and their ability to understand where the group is at as a whole and its ability to have the skills to take on responsibility and then making judgment calls about how much and when and what dosage you give as you start to give more responsibility and allow those athletes to take the responsibility and I think that is a, a skillful act on part of the staff and the uh, and the, the head coach to understand where the athlete group is on the whole and then obviously then looking to slide up and down a continuum of how much um, you're looking to empower give responsibility take ownership based on the level of maturity on individuals on groups of individuals and across the across the staff that for me is some might use the cliche of the art of coaching but I, I genuinely feel that it takes a huge amount of experience expertise and judgment it's difficult to measure the entitlement piece is a a fine line I guess if you are going to get it wrong between depowering somebody and perhaps overdoing it and creating entitlement I'd probably want to I'd probably want to over empower I don't know if you can over empower but if it leads to entitlement I'd probably I'd probably rather be there than athletes being in a space where they then they're not taking responsibility and accountability for what they do they're not taking ownership because you're not providing the environment to do it so i'd possibly rather get it wrong with that end of the spectrum than the other end of the spectrum with the men i've spent the last uh, 14 months just getting to grips with understanding the group and where they're at and 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 you just start to build like you would with any other skill like a technical hockey skill you, you just build their capacity to take more and more uh, ownership and accountability um, you know sometimes people talk about leadership making themselves redundant and there is an element of you're not making yourself necessarily redundant you're just working at a slightly different level to one that you 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 possibly would have previously and you're more a very much more light hand on the tiller but it is a, it is still on the tiller and I, I enjoy that side of the, the role as well reflecting and working with the staff and asking ourselves good questions of where is the group at the moment do they have the capacity and capability to take on more more ownership at this point or not you have been coaching a long time with great success do you find now that players can act differently now to when you first started and is there a difference in how the the male players you coach react to empowerment compared to say the women which you had great success with i definitely i've definitely asked myself more recently in the last well since rio does the sort of more recent generation of athletes coming into the squad do they come with a different set of values and attitudes and do i have the skills to adjust to that do some of their values and attitudes run counter to some of mine and am i willing to see see their perspective or you know am i am i skillful enough to understand i need to operate in a different way and then also as part of that equation i ask myself the question of well the the nature of sport has that actually shifted maybe not so much so yeah it's it's finding a way to win with that cohort that particular generation and whether i have the skills to do it and i've definitely thought about that a lot and at times i've really asked myself i'm, I'm not sure i have connected with some athletes as well as i as, as well as i've tried to do i haven't managed it 
in regard in relation to the gender and, and working now with the men that's a good question i'm still i'm in some in many ways i'm still making my mind up about that a little bit my sense is that the, the women enjoyed understanding why we're doing the things we're doing and would then want to get more involved in the process without sounding too stereotypical I, i've found them Perhaps the men are less interested in that and more interested in let's get on with it. That at the moment is my view on that sort of gender angle. I think we've asked this again, Michael. We've asked this to a number of people, but Dad, I'd be really interested to know your thoughts. How is how's your role as a coach evolving? I mean, I'm sure it is with every training session with you do with every year that goes past, but you know, what does the coach of the future look like, if you will? And if you look back on how you've changed as a coach, how much has it evolved? And you know, if you look five, ten years in, in the future. Yeah, how how do you see that role as a coach evolving? Again, I'll, I'll talk sort of talk personally. I think for me, the evolution probably in the last four to six years, maybe eight years, is, is sort of I talk about flexing and moving up and down continuums and trying to understand on the whole where your group is and then where individuals are within that group and then adapting your your way of how you deliver, how you work with people based on that context. And I have a strong sense that the expectation from younger athlete cohorts coming in is now is that if you're not good at that, you're not going to be successful. Whereas when I first became a national coach back in January 2005, there was very much an expectation of you as a coach to be a, a technical expert. You know, you've got to know your onions around uh, technical, tactical aspects now I think there's an expectation you've got to be good at that and you've also got to be able to work with me the expectation you've got to find a way to get the best out of me and there is an expectation I think on that now some of the conversations that come up in individual meetings is is around you're you're not doing it for me (laughs) that certainly was never a conversation sort of back in 2005 so I think that will possibly get stronger and then we might see a resetting of coming a bit of away from that a little bit where there becomes a, a more median position where athletes understand their responsibilities and roles and coaches and leaders understand their roles and responsibilities where I think at the moment people are still finding their space in that a little bit. I hope that doesn't sound too nebulous but that that's my sense of what where we are at the moment and what it's going to look like over the next few years. I don't think it sounds nebulous at all Danny and in my roles in sport I, I ask myself the same question every day how do you connect how do you get them and how can they get you because as we get older, they get, they get younger. And I have to remind yeah. myself that every time I go into a training ground because I get a year older than them and they look a little bit younger and are younger. And I think we have, to, as coaches, and we have to adapt to that. And you mentioned that you've been in leadership positions since 2005. You've been to many games and many tournaments. Looking back now, what do they teach you as a leader and how do you reflect on those experiences now? This is a really fascinating subject area for me personally. I think your ability to understand what the group needs, given where they are now, but also what's going to come up. And I often now talk about your ability to periodize the environment that you're creating. So, for example, we often talk about you know periodizing, you know, physiologically peaking. I, I often talk about trying to periodize how we act and behave as a staff, depending on what we feel the needs are of the program at the time. So there may be periods of the program which we deliberately make very challenging and you know almost elements of conflict elements of extreme hardship to engender resilience capability resourcefulness in the athletes and then as we go into major selection phases and into major tournaments we're actually now working with the athletes and very much raising their awareness around their absolute strengths that they can bring they know they can bring them building a, a greater sense of self-efficacy within the team and within the athletes but yeah so for me that leadership piece about where are they where is the group where does it need to be and also what's coming up 
and what skills and qualities are they going to need to have in that environment and therefore periodizing aspects of how the program will feel for those athletes through that time to equip them and then when we get to major tournament ensuring as a staff we're not adding to anxiety we're actually taking away any any anxieties and actually creating an environment where the athletes feel very confident in the processes they do very confident in their abilities and are able to deliver and they are some pretty hard-learned lessons over well, now four Olympic cycles, and I reflect how I was in 2008, how I was in 2016, and now looking towards Tokyo. You know, there's a whole set of skills and experiences that sit underneath that. Do you surround yourself with very different staff as well? Because I heard a wonderful quote on the boundary last week at cricket from a young coach, who I think will be an outstanding coach, who now understands why there are different members of staff and different numbers of staff, and also sometimes a lot of staff around a team, because... He said there are many diverse characters in the team and we need diverse staff as well to to match off with them rather than just the same voice. So have you looked for different staff to support you over the years as well? Uh, definitely. And, 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 and recently we've just been through a recruitment process for a new assistant coach for the men's programme. And before we actually started the interview process off, we just literally asked ourselves the most important set of questions. The number one bit was, where does fit, given the context of a year into a Games, rank in relation to more traditional aspects you'd be considering, such as level of experience, level of expertise? And we actually looked around the element of fit and what qualities that we currently have within the team and what aspects are we missing and what we absolutely don't want to be bringing into the environment in this last year. So absolutely my current staff is a really good blend of different personalities different viewpoints and perspectives but critically i think they also have the maturity that they can flex their own style given the environment and that's why i'm particularly enjoying the current staff i work with there's a real level of difference of views and perspectives but an ability for them to see other people's perspectives when we're having the conversations so you don't end up spending lots of times managing people banging heads you end up with much more mature conversations of different people appreciating other people's perspectives. And that, I have to say at the moment, is a fantastic environment. Going back to something else you said at, at the PA, it was, was around fulfilment. And that was something that really you know, made an impact on, on me when you said it. And I remember Andrew Strauss and Dave Barrows were talking about it at the PA. And, and it was around that point that you said that winning after winning in itself does not always necessarily bring fulfillment, which I thought was a really interesting thought. So I don't know if you mind kind of sharing what, what you meant by that when, when you had that discussion, you know, when we had that discussion. And also in the last 10 months or so, has that changed? I, I never forget the period uh, once the the, uh, the women's programme restarted after Rio. So let's take the 12 months of the programme after Rio. We had, uh, I think it was eight uh, gold medalists. And I think the other eight had retired. And I would say a good 75% of those eight actually had had, had a, a relatively profound period of struggle post winning a gold medal, which to the public seems a rather strange thing to say. You know, you've fulfilled what on the surface seems a lifetime achievement, you know, winning Olympic gold medal. It's an incredibly rare thing. But I think people suddenly realize that actually <laughs> Olympic gold medalists, you know, may change some elements of your financial situation. But actually, the thing that 
is actually bringing you happiness and fulfillment is who are you spending your time with are you enjoying what you are doing and when they came back to training and realizing it's the same people training is still challenging hard there's an element of repetition as much as we try and make things variable and then unless you can really see that environment for what it is and enjoy it for what it is that gold medal materially doesn't change much Uh, and some of those athletes struggled with that and i think they're at fortunately many of them well i think they're all out the back end of that now and they're in a much better place so you know the outcome goal of winning we strive for that outcome we want to achieve it and i think those who've actually gone on to achieve it suddenly realizing actually it is being with people it's doing the things that we love is where the real fulfillment lies it's brilliant to have the medal but it's so short term you know it's a it's a good party for a week or so uh, for some of the girls a bit longer for some of them a bit less and after that mm-hmm. you've got to love what you do and it's not going to bring you everlasting fulfillment it'll be a nice thing to talk about but it's not going to change you materially it may help you a bit financially as a more mature coach what brings that sense of real fulfillment now as you as you move towards the, the next olympiad in tokyo in 20 in summer 21 a similar journey for myself in many in many ways that i just referred to and i think where i'm at is I, and again, it sounds a bit corny and cliche, but I am really enjoying this concept of mastery. You know, genuinely, when I drive home from a day at Bisham Abbey with the athletes and I feel like my interactions and the way that we've worked with the staff and the session design, and I think I've smashed that. I have an absolute bounce in my step where I come home and think, I didn't quite get that right. And I could have thought better about that. That's, you know, that's when I'm sort of now giving myself a break i will now not ruminate on that for too long and think okay but my intentions were fantastic i did the planning i've learned from that now park that and move on and that's kind of where i am it's not quite a zen lifestyle but i'm much better than i ever used to be i'm i understand what it is that i enjoy doing i understand what gives me that fulfillment and enjoyment but equally when it hasn't quite worked i am i give myself the, you know, the license to say don't beat yourself up too much about it from a player's perspective, how do, how do you help them find their personal fulfilment? You know, you touched upon it there about enjoying it and realizing what special moments come. But you know, I guess a lot of these players won't realize that till after they've achieved it. So, how do you help you know, players to find that personal fulfilment while, while they're still on that journey? Yeah, we have a we have a very particular uh, process in the men's in the, men, the GB men's hockey program. It's called the Y Discovery Process, and Katie Warner uh, started and led that, and Tim continues to work with that. And Katie's rejoining our program following her uh, maternity leave. So we're going to have two psychologists and we've actually pushed that Y discovery process back up our agenda. And essentially that process is a, is a long series of very, very good conversations with the psychologist of them trying to understand why they do what they do. That's a pretty weighty conversation if it's done well, them understanding what led them to pick up a hockey stick, who has supported them through that journey, what is it they really enjoy about what they currently do, what do they find challenging, but why do they persist, why do they persevere? And through that, we distill what they call their their why. And, you know, Simon Sinek and, you know, is that classic TED talk. And that, that's sort of the core of it is understanding why why you do what you do, what's led you to be where you are, who are the people you appreciate and value in life what you're grateful for. We then do a very powerful process where those athletes after that why process actually get up and present to the rest of the squad to sort of explain, this is me, this is who I am, this is why I do what I do. Uh, And that provides quite a compelling story. They're quite something to behold. But also then the other athletes in the room have a greater understanding of that athlete, a great ability to support them through, you know, can what can be challenging and, and a tough environment at times. 
So um, I'm painting a particular picture that might sound, you know, it's all perfect. No, there are definitely times when athletes will really ask themselves, I'm not sure why I'm here and I'm really hating this. But on the whole, I think we have a really good process where athletes get beyond just the glib answer. I'm I'm here to win Olympic medal, which they are, but they also understand what they love about the game and love about being around like-minded people and love about the training and love about the challenge and the environment. We work hard in that space in hockey, and I'm I'm pretty proud of the work that, that Katie and Tim have done. When I hear that, Danny, it's clear that you put a lot of emphasis on the culture around the group as much as the, the process and as much as the winning, because it's all about gold, as you say. And anyone who's heard you speak at Leeds or read your interviews and your literature will know how much that means to you. How integral is culture to you as the bedrock of high performance? And what experiences have shaped you to think about culture in the way that you do now? Before I was the national head coach, I actually taught the sociology of sport, lectured in the sociology of sport at Brunel University and then at, university, at, then at the university down in Canterbury. So... I had a pretty good grounding in, in the theory of society and actually what culture is. For me, one moment that really hit the nail on the head was I was taking the women's program down to the Royal Marine Commander Training Centre in 2010 down in Limpston. And I remember being on the bus uh, and we'd done, we had done and started to initiate some culture work. And you could see all the girls are very, very quiet, which I can assure you was not normal uh, on the bus. Mm-hmm. And um, I asked one of them, you know, what, what's going on here? Why is everyone sort of, you know, quiet? And everyone, well, we're all pretty nervous of what we're about to face. And I said, well, how do you know what you're about to face? And they said, well, we're, we're going to the Royal Marine Commando Training Centre like it's the Royal Marines. And I said, well, what do you know about the Royal Marines? And they said, well, not a lot. And I said, well, what are you nervous about then? And for me, the com- it was more about what that institution stood for. And for me, that, w- that was a moment I thought, well, if their culture is so ingrained over over the decades over a period of time that actually starts to has a, has a, an impression wider than its actual group you're in a good wicket there because people coming in are self-selecting into that environment into that culture i want to be part of that culture it has this type of values and attitudes attributed to it these are the types of standards that i'm volunteering to try to get into and I thought, how wonderful would that be to be part of a team that created that type of culture that people from the outside almost have a sense of what it is to be part of that team? And could we create something similar with the women that would have legacy beyond a four-year cycle? So the next cohort of athletes coming and joining a program knew essentially this is how things are here. This is how we roll. That's not easy to do. And there's a lot of hard work getting to that point. But very proud of, of the likes of Kate Richardson Walsh and and others who helped form that that women's identity and what the program stood for. So there's one level it, it it pays off in the longer run because people who want to be part of that program kind of almost know before coming in, this is what I'm signing up for. I want to be part of that. So it's helping you get to the type of athletes you need. On the other level, it becomes self-perpetuating, self-reinforcing. So to err is human and and as athletes will and as coaches will have bad days and there'll be times where we just let ourselves down but the environment makes it hard for that to be to be easy to do because you want to to do your best by the other people who are also trying to be the best that they can be and you want to live up to your friends your colleagues within the program and how they are and that becomes a a nice perpetuating environment that just holds the standards that are going to be needed through the challenging times of Olympic program to take us take the program where it wants to go Um, so for me it is fundamental 
I spend a bit of time with Eddie Jones in rugby and we have a slightly different view on it and uh, he has an equally yeah a, a nice perspective on it but for me it's absolutely fundamental if you do, if you don't have a really well established performance culture you're on shallow foundations and you may have a quite a charismatic leader that's going to you know hold people to account but how long and 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 the men talk about you know are people performing when the lights are off when the back is turned when people aren't in the environment and and it's your culture that keeps people where they need to be in order to fulfill what the group wants to fulfill one piece there that you mentioned is is again something you, you've mentioned before and it's, it's that part of leadership development okay you know the player shifting from from being followers to, to leaders within the group you said last year that doesn't require resources much as, as thinking space which I thought was an interesting take on it I mean what, what did you mean by that specifically let's take a Thursday hockey session um, and if you have a long-term overarching goal of developing a um, what I call a, a depth of leadership through your group and you are going to need a depth because people will will have bad days. You know, Kate Kate will have a bad day. Who's going to step in when Kate has a bad day? So you need a depth of leadership. So if that's an overarching goal and something you believe in fundamentally, which I do, how much space are you creating for people to lead in? So you as the coach might always be stepping into that space and filling that leadership space. So how can you then expect people on the pitch to, to lead? How much ingenuity do you create in your environment where people by default have to take a grip of a situation, have to te- have to lead, have to take responsibility and accountability for the decisions they make? And again, your job as the, as the leader of the program is to think about grading that. So not expecting some massive jump in ability and, you know, sink or swim, but just providing the right level of opportunities at the right challenge point. For them just to learn some of these the nuances of what it is to lead what it is to grip a situation what it is to have good difficult conversations and in the moment while a game is going on if that's the headspace you've given yourself the head coach to think this is a strategic goal we want to achieve how am i going to make sure that's operationalized on a day-to-day basis and how am i going to make enough space in our day-to-day business that athletes essentially will have to lead and therefore grow leadership. So it isn't about, you know, some fancy resource of bringing in necessarily leadership experts. It's the headspace to think about how you're going to do it and then the opportunity and not filling that opportunity yourself as coaches and staff, but making sure the space and the opportunity is there for athletes to fill that space themselves. I'm picturing it now in my, in my mind of what a Thursday session or one of those sessions will look like. Do you set the team up with drills to, to think differently, to lead them through difficult situations? So when the game comes, they think to themselves, I've done something as difficult as this and we've come through it. What does, yep. what does that actually look like? And, do, and do, do you actually tell the players, this is the day when we're going to test you to a, to a different level? Yes, fundamentally. So um, currently with the men, we split the week in half. The first half of the week is where we're installing elements of our play and the second half of the week is when we put it under pressure. And take, for example, uh, yesterday's session with the men. There are two teams. We create an environment where we, we're specifically looking at the challenges that come up at the very start of the game, then the challenges that happen through the middle area of the game and then the challenges that happen in the last element of the game. And we create uh, all sorts of fun and games around scoring systems and different constraints where if there's good effective leadership, they will be more more successful and better able to win in during those periods of the game. So yesterday we talked about uh, we talked about the chaotic end. So we deliberately designed a chaotic end to the session 
to which the athletes weren't privy. And then that chaotic end is right, we've got to go play. Uh, and then there's an expectation for the leaders to try and get a grip of that situation. And at the end of the session, we I said to the lads, right, we've physically finished. We're not running around anymore, but we've actually still got 15 to 20 minutes now where we're going to discuss what that last chaotic end looked like. What was good? What did we do well? What did the leadership do? Were we all clear? Were we on the same page? What would we do differently next time? So because it, it's a strategic priority, you're providing the space for them to have a go at it, but you're also providing them a space to reflect on it. So when we come to it next week, they can move on and get better, like you would with any skill. I know. I still know, Danny, from from staff I met with who worked with you years ago. Just recently, they still talk about those sessions and those plans and those ideas. And I think it leaves it with the staff as much as the players as well, doesn't it? Yes, and I think one of the things that I'm always quite interested in, Michael, given your role, I think quite often for me I reflect on the role of sports psychology and, and, and a lot of it tends to be delivered in, in meeting rooms or, or, or one-on-one in small conversations. And I have challenged not just the psychologists but some of the other practitioners about, okay, well, if you are now designing this Thinking Thursday, what elements would you bring? What could we do there? So we try to make it a more applied across multiple domains. So Paul Stretch, who is our lead strength and conditioning coach for the men, doing an exceptional job. He was asking me about the game model the other day, and we were reviewing our game model from a physical perspective. So quite often we'll have, you know, what, what given where we are in the physical plan to Tokyo, Paul, is there elements that you would like to see within our pitch sessions which will hit some physical parameters? So, you know, trying to make it a across multiple disciplines, uh, ensuring that we're hitting you know many different facets that we need to within the program rather than purely a technical tactical aspect. Well, just to answer your question about my role, in, in all the teams I still play a role with and got some new ones coming up, I do try and bring, not fresh thinking, but I do try and bring outside ideas because I'm not the expert in their sport. It's an advantage because you can suggest things and some will be rejected, some will be accepted, but I just, hopefully it brings fresh energy to a group, Danny. I think from my perspective, from my role, and I'm I've been around a few years now. I always hope I can continue to do that. Otherwise, it can get just a little samey. Sport can get samey, can't it? Yes, and and again, that's something as a head coach you wrestle with a lot. I never forget, I worked with a very good strength and conditioning coach called David Hamilton, who now works in the NFL in, in America. He had this great phrase. He said something to the effect of variety is the spice of life and training is you know, essentially the porridge. And sometimes you've just got to embrace the porridge. And uh, that's always stuck with me. And, and there's an element of, at times, yes, absolutely, trying to create difference, trying to create variety, trying to keep your athletes engaged. But also sometimes there's an element of, you know what, you have to sometimes embrace the porridge. And you are because you can only dress up certain things so many ways. And that has been interesting. If I think of you know someone like Kate Richardson-Walsh, who, who went through four Olympic cycles, to keep coming back to do essentially the same hard, challenging thing year on, year on, year on, and then ultimately be successful is because she had an ability to keep coming back, keep doing the stuff that mattered. And it's the same with people like Stephen Redgrave, Matthew Pinson. Fundamentally, you can try and make the environment creative, engaging, inspiring, and you have a responsibility to do that. But at points, it is being on an ergo and pushing hard is no escaping that. You're going to have to do it. You're going to need people who can embrace the porridge. Being boring is a really wonderful thing in sport at times. And porridge can be a little bit boring without good ingredients and so can training. So if I'm, if I may, Danny, with your with express permission on a public on a public platform, <laughs> to nick that line unashamedly. But I've got one more question, Danny, if, if I may. 
is we've all had time, even if it wasn't always wanted during the last six months, to, to read more books, watch more films, subscribe to Netflix, call it what you will. During the past six months, is there anything that you've indulged yourself in in terms of reading or watching or listening to a podcast, a film, a series, which has just captured your different imagination from your normal from your normal routines? Is there something you can recommend to the Leaders Platform which really intrigued you? Yeah, I'm actually reading a book at the moment called Moments or Moment. I can't remember if it's a plural or not. It's written by the Heath brothers. Is it Chip and Dan Heath? Who wrote Made to Stick? And I wrote Made to Stick many years ago. And then I saw this book called Moments. It's a brilliantly written, it's sort of written, it's not a sort of academic text. It's written in a way that just makes you really think about how you create moments in people's lives that stick. That's been a really useful tool for me at the moment, thinking about my role. And what is it that why why certain moments stick in people's memories for their lives? And actually, when you think about the role that we do, do you create and do you give enough thought to, you know, I'm going to just create a moment here that is going to and it's going to be sticky and it will live with them and it will live with them in a good way. And it will also pay its dividends when it needs to. So let, let's say we're in a very critical or a moment in Olympic Games and we can just refer to, remember that moment? And everyone will go, yeah, that's a book I'm reading at the moment called Moments. I really enjoyed that. I've also, the other book I read over lockdown was um, Streetlights and Shadows by Gary Klein. That's a little bit more academic, but it's about decision-making. And that's a fantastic book. I would really recommend that for anyone who's in the space of coaching. It's probably a cry to value more expertise, intuition, and judgment than we perhaps do in the the era of big data. Um, And understanding the place of data and process, but also understanding why judgment, expertise, and intuition is also fundamental. And I've I've enjoyed that book as well. In addition to stealing your phrase about porridge, you've just cost me about another thirty-five pounds on my ever-increasing Amazon bill. Uh, and I look for, and I know Chip and Dan Heath, and I will read that. And I, just on a very personal level, I I do rely on moments both in my role and with coaches because I think without those moments, I think the porridge can get just beyond turgid. And I think yep. we have to we have to work towards those moments, and when they happen recognize them celebrate them because that's why we do this i mean we're unbelievably privileged to do it but without those moments it becomes a job and this and i think our role your role is is more than just a job a hundred percent yeah and apologies i've added to your um to your credit card bill michael no not at all i think the rest of my outgoings in life have gone down in the last six months like most of us but the one thing that has gone up uh, and if i don't get sponsored by amazon at some point i'd be desperately disappointed but danny on behalf of leaders and matt can i just thank you for your time because i know that we all think that head coaches are doing less at the minute. They're not. They're doing more planning and more strategy and more communicating and more connecting than ever. So thank you for your time this afternoon on behalf of leaders. And one day when things are a little bit more settled, I hope that you and I again can meet up. I can meet your team and your staff because I know that when it comes to a high performance culture, that you've created not but one, not but two, but many over the years, Danny. So thank you for sharing your insights with the leaders platform today. Very grateful indeed. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Michael, and thanks, Matt. It's been it's a pleasure to be asked. Thank you. That's it for another episode. But if you've enjoyed this podcast, then you can find many more like it on the Leaders Content Hub, as well as on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred platform. Check us out on at leaders underscore insight on Twitter as well, as we'll post all our content on there as well. We've been lucky enough to have Danny speak at our events in the past. So if you'd like to watch those sessions back and hundreds more like it from top leaders in high performance from 10 years worth of our events, then you can do just that by becoming a member of the Leaders Performance Institute. 
You'll be able to access content, virtual learning, events, and also engage with 700 members from 150 teams spanning 25 countries and 20 sports worldwide. For more information, then head over to leadersandsport.com forward slash performance to learn more about the home of Total High Performance. Once again, thank you to John, Luke, and all the content team behind the scenes for providing some great questions and making this all possible. Hopefully, you're enjoying these conversations. We certainly are. Until next time, stay safe and keep thinking. Speak soon. <music>